Hello, my name is Ian McRae. I'm an entomologist with the Department of Entomology at the University of Minnesota. I'm stationed at a research and outreach center way up in the northwest part of the state. I'd like to thank you very much for inviting me here to talk to you today. I'm going to dis discuss some of the work, um, kind of in generalities, and also some of the work we've done using drones and uh, remote sensing to do some remote scouting for pests, both insects and uh, disease. To understand what we're doing when we use remote sensing to evaluate plants, you kind of have to understand how plants use the electromagnetic energy that's coming down from the sun and, and uh, what they do with it. Now, as you remember from school, if you take a prism, you can take white light and break it into the individual wavelengths of, of red all the way down to violet. And each one of those represents a wavelength of how long the, the photons in, the, uh, in that particular color are, are traveling in that wavelength. Well, plants use different wavelengths in different ways. For example, they reflect all of the photons that are in the green wavelength. Be, we know that because plants are green, and that's what you're seeing. You're seeing the reflected green light. However, photons that are in the red wavelengths and in the blue wavelengths, plants will absorb those because those photons actually power photosynthesis. There are other wavelengths that we can't see. They're slightly longer than red, and those are in the infrared. And what we see with infrared light is plants have evolved the ability to reflect infrared light. And it's the cells in the mesophyll area of the leaf that are responsible for that. Now, the reason they reflect infrared light is because the photons that are in infrared light don't have enough energy to run photosynthesis. They wouldn't be that useful to the plant, and therefore they wouldn't be used. They'd have to turn into a different kind of energy like heat, and that wouldn't be healthy for the plant. So plants have evolved to reflect infrared light. When you measure the infrared, infrared light, uh, you can see different things at different wavelengths in there as well. Um, for example, when you stress a plant, one of the first things that happens is that the precursors to photosynthesis start to break down. And this means that you start to get changes and disruptions in those cells that are in the mesophyll. And there are other structural changes that happen as well. And what happens is a stressed plant actually loses the ability or has it impaired that ability to reflect infrared light that becomes impaired so if you measure the amount of infrared light that's coming from a healthy plant compared to that that's coming from a stress plant you'll see the stress plant is reflecting a lot less infrared light and if you look at the different wavelengths within the infrared light you can actually get an idea of what is causing the stress for example drought stress or water content differences are going to be seen in what's called the shortwave infrared light. And that's a little bit longer than near infrared, which is just above the visible red. In the near infrared, that area between, just above that red, that red that we can see, that's where you're going to start seeing impacts from plant disease and from, uh, uh, from insects. So we've got a tool where when we look at these, we do have sensors that can take pictures of of plants and look at the infrared light that can see it even though we can't the sensor can and it, by comparing the ratios of what light wavelengths are being reflected we can actually start to have a little bit of an idea of what stress these plants are actually under and that's actually the the, the basis of a lot of our research right now the reason we use drones in remote scouting in in agriculture is because well, it's a happenstance, a very convenient happenstance between the development of simultaneous development of two different technologies. We started to see the development of very small unmanned aerial systems or drones 
their control software got a lot uh, got a lot better, got a lot simpler. They got smaller. They were able to had greater lift and and take greater payloads. They became simpler to operate. They started to be able to fly for longer periods of time on batteries. Basically, what you saw was a tremendous development in drones over the last 15 years. And it's one of the reasons why they've kind of flooded the commercial, you know, the, the consumer market right now. And simultaneously, we saw, we saw advances in the technology and the resolution of the sensors themselves that we use in remote sensing. We saw them get smaller. We saw their power usage get smarter. We saw their resolution increase. They got better. And so we ended up with very small sensors that could be supported by these drones. And the result is we now have airborne platforms or airborne tripods, if you want, for these high resolution sensors that can get us some very good information and help us in our decision-making in agriculture. Now, there are a wide variety of drones available right now. Uh, in our research, we use multi-rotor systems, these little quadcopters, sometimes larger copters with, with more rotors, up to, up to eight. And so there's a wide variety out there, though. But if you're looking at just remote sensing, you don't have to lift a lot of, of weight. The sensors are, are actually quite small. So usually we can get away with using these smaller, less expensive drones. Uh, but there's a lot of different options out there for you to, to utilize. A lot of these frying, fly, sorry, flying tripods that can get the sensors into areas immediately in a way that we haven't been able to do so far. Likewise, there are a number of different kinds of sensors that are out there. For pest sensing or for pest scouting, mostly what we're interested in are imaging sensors. And there's a couple of different kinds that are in common use. There are a number of, of uh, sensors out there, but the two, that are, the two types that are in, in very, real common use are multi-sensor arrays, which are kind of the, the images that are on the left-hand side of the screen, and they all look like they've got a bunch of different lenses. And thermal cameras, which are, is that camera that's on the right-hand side of the screen. Uh, multi-sensor arrays usually have one camera that's in the visible range, or the VIS range, and that's just the standard digital camera, much like what would be on your cell phone. The other lenses that are on there, whether it's three or six or however many, uh, they're usually for specific ranges in the near infrared. And oftentimes those different ranges are indicative of a different kind of, of, uh, of stress. And so these are sensors, many of them are sensors that are specifically designed to pick up one specific or identify one specific kind of stressor. Thermal cameras, on the other hand, they're getting very small indeed. Some of them are getting smaller than the size of a computer mouse. And uh, they take a, an image where the, the color that's on the resulting image actually represents the temperature of the object in the image. And so we can use a thermal camera to take a picture of a crop canopy. And these are rather useful for plant disease because disease, uh, plant diseases usually have a greater impact on the stomatal ability of a, uh, of, of a plant than do insect damages. And so Oftentimes, a plant that has been infected with a disease will have a higher temperature than uh, healthy plants around it. And so it's a way to kind of look at what the, um, if you use both of these sensors together, you can sometimes differentiate between different kinds of stressors. When you fly over a field, uh, it's not one, you're not going to be using this type of long video, but as you're flying, these sensors are taking individual pictures as they go, which means you're going to end up with a whole lot of pictures or even a small amount of, it, a small amount of land.
and you're going to have to put them together into one large picture so that you can actually use, uh, uh, do some analysis on that image. And there's uh, software out there that will do this called uh, stitching software. There's a number of different uh, software out there that'll do it. And it basically looks for common points in the imagery and joins them all together like a big jigsaw puzzle. For example, this is one of our research fields. It's a potato, it's a field of potato plots. It's about one and a half acres large. And this is not one single image, although it looks like it. It's actually a combination, a stitched image of 128 separate photographs. For example, it's a good example of this because up in the upper right corner, you can see two yellow dots. That's actually the same person. Uh, it's a young lady who's taking data from those plots. We caught her as the, um, as the uh, drone was going up the field and then before it turned around and came back down because it flies this pattern over the field back and forth to take all of these imagery. So we caught her once and then she moved on to the next one and we caught her in the next uh, section. Those little white dots that are down in the center right, you can see there's uh, kind of two little short ones and then this long rectangle. That's actually one piece of, uh, I think it's a plastic bag if I recall, and it's being blown over the canopy by a gentle wind that we were having that day. And so it's actually caught in about three or four or five different images. And that's why that long one looks there. Uh, looks like it's all long. It looks like it's one object. It's not. It's the same object caught multiple times. And this underscores the need for having some personal knowledge of the uh, field that you're dealing with, that you're trying to analyze, some history of it. Without that, the imagery is not going to be as valuable. So it's really good idea to have someone who, who knows the field take part in the analysis of it. Well, what can you use this with? Well, we've got a number of projects that we have used um, remote sensing with. One of our big ones was with uh, soybean aphid. And in fact, we have, uh, we've received some very good results with, uh, with that. But the one I wanted to show you just as an example, because it has nice big photographs here, is sugar beet root maggot. And I thought this would be a good example because root maggot in sugar beets is a pest on the root. It's not, uh, there is no visible damage on the leaves until the damage is quite a long way into the season and then you might get some wilting. To actually scout for root maggot, you actually have to destructively pull the plant out of the, out of the ground and look for root maggot. So we were looking for a way where we could estimate what root maggot damage was happening in a field or see some indication of it. So we were looking with near-infrared photography. We were taking pictures of the canopy. And we have two really good examples here. The top image, uh, these are, again, these are near IR. These are infrared images. The redder and the brighter the picture, the more infrared is being reflected. The top image is a plant that basically has very low sugar beet root maggot populations on its root. We pulled them up after taking the images and counted. And you can see a lot of infrared being reflected. The, the image on the bottom is a plant that actually had very high root maggot populations. It was pretty heavily stressed. And correspondingly, it is not reflecting a lot of infrared light. The ability to, to uh, reflect infrared light has been impaired. And so if you have these stressed plants in a field, they become very visible amongst, uh, uh, especially if they're surrounded by healthy plants. So this is now aiding us in our scouting. You can use it in diseases as well. These are uh, wheat research plots, again, here in, in, uh, in Crookston at our, uh, at our research and outreach center. And they represent, uh, the, these are plots that have been in, infected with a particular disease. Now, the, uh, um, 
This is a thermal image. So what we're actually looking at is the temperature that's being reflected in the canopy. A visible version of this field would just be solid green all the way across. And you can see those little yellow hot spots in the middle. Those are actually plants that have been infected with the disease about four to seven days prior to this image being taken. You can see other plots that have been in this image, kind of at the edges, that have had the disease and it's well along. But what this demonstrates is we can start to see some of the responses of the plant to being infected fairly early. So again, this is a potential scouting tool for plant disease as well. That's not to say that you need near-infrared or thermal uh, cameras to get good data. And indeed, visible data can provide you with a lot of information. Flying a digital camera over a field can, is a great way to look at your stand counts and look at your stand establishment. It will show you where you've had planter skips. It'll show you where you may have nutrient problems, where there may be poorer soil and poorer establishment of, of, your, of your plants. Uh, hail damage, planter skips, like I'd said, uh, any defoliation, all of this will show up in visible, uh, visible uh, uh, imagery. And in fact, anything you can see from the ground you'll get a better view of. You'll get a, literally, a bird's eye view. You'll get a larger picture of the field. You'll have a better idea of what's going on. For example, up here in Northwest Minnesota, we, uh, all of our river systems run north. And this means we have a problem in the spring because all of our surface drainage is going into streams that are limping into, that are emptying into rivers that are flowing into areas that are still frozen. So we get a backup of water. And a lot of the growers in the, in the area here have taken to using drones to flying their fields in the spring to see where they should put additional field drainage, where they should inc increase their ditching. And so it's been quite useful to them for that. Perhaps one of the best uses for using just visible data would be looking at spray drift for herbicide injury. This image comes from a paper where the authors actually uh, uh, inflicted the damage themselves, they did an application down in the lower right-hand corner, and you can see the plume of herbicide on a very windy day as it streaks up across that field. And it gives an excellent example of herbicide drift. And so, again, this is, would be an excellent use for this technology. Well, are we seeing this technology replace any of the others? No, not really. Satellites remain the least expensive way to get um, your, your kind of remote sensing data. And the reason for that is their footprint is huge. So the amount of ground they cover, your cost per square foot is much lower with satellite damage or satellite uh, imagery. But the problem with satellite imagery is the resolution is quite high. The smallest thing you can see is probably about three meters. And also they're stuck on a schedule, an orbital schedule. So if a satellite flies over right now and, and it's cloudy out, uh, it's not going to get a lot of data. And if, it, if that cloud clears in 30 minutes, you can't call back the satellite company or NASA and say, can you send that bird back because it's clear now? No, you can't. But you could break out a drone and fly it immediately. So drones offer an immediacy of data that you don't have with some of the other methods. It also gives you higher resolution than some of the other methods. But it doesn't replace them. The way to look at drone imagery is that it's an addition. It's an addition to walking your fields. It's an addition to satellite data. It just provides you with more data that you can use to generate good information to make decisions. Well, why aren't everybody using these things? Why don't we have drones everywhere? We may someday, but right now there are some barriers to adoption. There are regulatory issues. 
you still have to learn, you still have to get uh, a certification from the FAA to, to use these commercially. The return on investment might be, might not be quite where people want to get it yet. There's an apparent complexity of technology, although that's getting much simpler. And there's also an, these different adoption models. Most of the stakeholders I talk to are very interested in the data, but they don't want to be the one to acquire it or analyze it. So we may be looking at the adoption of service models where it's contracted out as a job. And that's going to take a little while to maybe sort out and, and come up with uh, uh, the, the best uses. What's the future? If you can imagine the future for these things, they were probably somebody's working on it. We're seeing machine learning, which is a very in-depth uh, um, analysis of the data, large data sets, so we can better identify what wavelengths are associated with what kind of stress. We're seeing swarm technology being developed. That's where you have multiple drones out. They all know where each other is and they fly set patterns. You cover more ground in less time. You also have machine language where drones are actually sending information to machines on the ground. So they may be sending information about what they're seeing to driverless tractors or to these individual robots that, indivi that, that deliver inputs to individual plants. So there's a lot of future for this technology and I'm sure we're gonna see greater and greater adoption of it. My last piece of advice would be, if you do want to get into this, uh, I would advise you to invest heavily in spare parts because what goes up will come down. And in fact, uh, this particular one had a bad battery and the battery caught fire in midair and it came down in, like I say, a very spectacular fiery manner. If you have questions, I will be available in the question period and I thank you for your attention questions, I will be available in the question period, and I thank you for your attention.